Our reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Amen. And may God bless the reading from his holy word. 2019, what, what do you remember? Well, I mean, COVID-19 gets its uh, name from that, doesn't it? But I think most of us didn't really know anything about COVID until 2020, even though it had, but 2019, Olivia Coleman got her Oscar for Best Actress in 2019. That was the year of the fire in Notre Dame Cathedral. Prince Andrew's car crash of an interview with Emily Maitlis, that was 2019. Uh, Champions League final was two English teams, Tottenham Hotspur against Liverpool. The reason I picked 2019 is that was the last time in the UK that we had a general election. And um, you see, there are some things in the past that don't affect us so much into the future. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur and Liverpool were in the final, and they're both having a lousy season this season, uh, I'm quite pleased to say. Um, <coughs> Just because they did well then, nothing about it. Now, Olivia Coleman gets an Oscar, but that doesn't guarantee her next film's any good. It doesn't guarantee that it'll be popular. You know, it's, it's, for, it's looking back, it's there, but it doesn't really project into the future, does it? A general election does, it says, for a maximum of five years, especially if, as there was in 2019, especially if there's a big majority, it says this is, this is who the government's going to be. 
we did think it was, this is who the prime minister's going to be, but then we've had three of them. Um, and in fact, there's still time for one or two more before, <laughs> before we have to go to the polls in 2024. Um, but but it, that's the thing. We, the, the general election says this is for the foreseeable future, possibly up to five years. This is, this is what we've got. Some results don't project forward. Some results do. Some things don't really influence far forward. Some do. Now, what about Easter? Well, Easter's past, isn't it? That was last Sunday. Easter's past in the sense that the events of Easter, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, were some almost 2,000 years ago. But Easter, it wasn't intended, isn't, isn't something that's just in the past. It's something that in the plan of God is in the here and now and projects forward. The gospel claim is that here is something established, not just for five years, not even for a couple of thousand years. Here is something established, not just until we can come up with something better, not just until science has taken us further, not just until we have found a better moral code of conduct, not just until some philosophy comes that makes more sense, not just until we've discovered whether or not there is life on other planets. Here is something that has been established by God for always, for everywhere. That's the gospel claim. Now, the end of chapter 5 of Romans, just before the passage that Helen read for us, Paul is reaching back and, and making the contrast between Adam and Christ. He's saying there are two groups of people, two categories. There are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. No third option. No category C. We are in Adam, he says, or we're in Christ. And what he means is that the work of Christ has taken folk who are imprisoned by the reign of sin and releases them and sets them free to live in the wider world of grace and righteousness. And as the Apostle Paul's explaining this in, in these chapters in Romans, he's, he's remembering the, the pattern established, as it were, in the Old Testament. He's, he's thinking back. Now, he's going to talk in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6 about going through the waters of baptism. And, and in the back of his mind, I'm sure, is the people of Israel going through the waters of the Red Sea after they escaped from Egypt. That, that was the big motif. That was the big picture of salvation in the Old Testament. They go through the waters of the Red Sea. We go through the waters of baptism, Romans chapter 6. Once through the waters of the Red Sea and in the wilderness, that's when they are given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And Romans chapter 7 is about that struggle we have with the law and obedience. But after 40 years in the wilderness, then the, the people of Israel are, are taken to the promised land, the land that had been promised way back in Abraham's time. And in Romans chapter 8, it's the being taken to the, the, the new creation, the fullness of salvation. It's a similar pattern he's got here saying, this is not God's plan B. This is what God was about all along, establishing this, this new creation, but working towards this kingdom of righteousness and fullness of life. And a whole new world then, a whole new world order was breaking out of the tomb with Jesus when Jesus rose. A whole new 
world order that was never to be replaced or supplanted or anything like. And so he's saying that being in Christ, being a follower of Jesus, is not just something that we decide, not just something that we add to anything else that we're about or do. It's to move, he says, from being an Adam, being one type of humanity to the other. He says, you die and rise again with the Messiah. And in these verses that Helen read, the Messiah is our representative. So that what is true of him, what is true of Jesus, is true of his people. Now, Paul learned that lesson firsthand. Previously, he was Saul of Tarsus. Um, He was a persecutor of the church. And you might know that One day he was going to Damascus to put some more Christians in jail, arrest some more. And as he traveled to Damascus, so he met the risen Jesus. Christ appeared to him. And what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is, he didn't say, why are you beating up Christians? He didn't say, why are you attacking my church? He didn't say, why have you got it in for my disciples? He said, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus was so closely identified with his disciples and with his people that to do something to to them was to do something to Jesus. And what was true of Jesus was also to be true of them. That's how Paul learned this lesson that he's explaining in this chapter. The transfer from Adam to Christ has taken place for the Christian. Hence, notice in these verses the past tense. But also just notice how close is the union. Verse 3, we're baptized into Christ Jesus. We are with him or with Christ in in verse verse 4, buried with him. Verse 5, united with him. Verse 6, crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we will also live with him. See how close that is? What's true and what's true of the Messiah is true of the Messiah's people. In Christ alone. That's the closeness. And what is true of God's agent, his Messiah, his anointed one, is to be true of his people. Now, especially verses 3 and 4, the act of baptism involves the Christian in dying and rising with Jesus. In baptism, he says, as it were, we were planted into the death of Christ in order that we may now live as renewed people, planted also into the resurrection life. And that's what baptism is. Now, I don't want to go down the road about infant versus believer's baptism, and I don't want to go down the road this morning about immersion versus sprinkling and all that. If you're interested in that, you can speak to me afterward. I'll give you my tuppence worth. Um, But for the point here is that this is what the apostle is saying, that baptism puts us in Christ. And in Christ, we are no longer in Adam, and it's a new humanity. It's a new way of life and new living. No references in the New Testament to baptism are age-specific. So whether someone is three months or three or 33 or 93, baptism is baptism. 
And it's a sign of being dead to sin, dead to the way of Adam, but alive in Christ, who we are with, with him. So then, he says, live that way. Live as if Easter has really happened and is still at work in the world. Live as people who have died to, to the ways of Adam and, and are alive with, to, to the ways of Christ. Now, sin in this chapter, and it comes up, you know, shall we go on sinning, and it talks about sin. Sin is not just uh, a reference. In fact, in this chapter, it's not a reference to a set of activities that are wrong. It's not a reference to telling a lie or indiscretions or whatever. Rather, it's sin as a, as a force, a power. Just sung about that, haven't we? Since curse has lost its grip on me. Did you notice in that hymn? It's a power, it's a force. And, and that's the, the language in this passage. And so there's a lot of slavery and, and master references. Verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Verse 7, because anyone who has died has been set free. Verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your master. What he's saying is he's talking about a power. He's talking about a force that is over us. And that is what Christ has d d delivered us from. That is what Christ has beaten. Doesn't mean that we never sin again, but it's a, it's a, it's a saying that the force of it the control that sin has over someone has been decisively beaten and broken by Christ's death and resurrection. And when we come to Christ, that, that's what's dealt with. A number of years ago, you'll know it's a number of years ago when I tell you it was when I was a student. Um, my parents um, were living in Aberdeen, and uh, the, the house they were staying in at the time um, overlooked the River Dee. And it was very close to where the River Dee joined the North Sea. So there it was, right in the heart of the city. And at that point, the River Dee was, was very wide. And as I was home one Christmas, during the Christmas holidays, very unusually, very amazingly, as, as I looked out the window and at the Dee, the one thing I couldn't see was any water because it had been completely covered over in ice. That was very unusual um, in the city, and, and when the Dee was so wide, maybe, you know, 30, 40 miles back inland, it might have frozen. But, but in the city, that was very... And it was as if the water wasn't, wasn't there. It was completely under the grip and under the control of the ice. And during the holidays, while I was there, there was a bit of a thaw, and gradually it broke up. And then for days afterwards, you would still, from time to time, see big lumps of ice come uh, down on the waters and, and heading towards the North Sea. But the grip, the power, the, the over, 
all control that had been broken. Now, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 6. He was saying those, those who are not in Christ, they're under this control of sin. They're under, it's got that power on them. It's got that grip. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, that's what's broken. Oh, yes, there will still be sin in our life from time to time, just like there were still big chunks of ice floating down the D for, for days to come. But the overall control, the overall hold, the overall power, that's what's gone. And that's the claim of the gospel. Not just we tidy up our lives here and there, improve this wee bit or that wee bit, but sin's power is broken. And then he says, verse 11, So, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the word count there is a bit of a bookkeeping term. You might think of the shopkeeper counting the money at the end of the day, although that's, that's less effective as a, an illustration in our almost cashless society. Um, but, but nevertheless, shopkeepers still have to add up at the end of the day their takings. Now, when they're counting the money and counting the takings that day, they're not creating anything, are they? It's not the case that if you count really well, there'll be a wee bit more. <laughs> and if you count badly, somehow money's taken away. You're just working out what is there. That's what you're reckoning on. That's what count means in that context. And that's what count means in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Count yourselves. He says, reckon it. Think about it. You're dead to sin. Why? Because you're really brilliant? No, because Christ has died and risen, and because you in Christ have died and risen with the new life of the gospel. And there's implications for it. When the shopkeeper counts, the, counts up his or her takings, there's implications. Go, oh, that's not very good. We might have to get rid of some of the part-time staff. Or that's really good. We'll be able to replenish the stock. Or that's really good. We'll be able to afford a holiday this year. You know, there are implications that come from the counting. And in the same way, Paul's saying, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Reckon this out. If I am in Christ, then I am no longer just to pursue my own interests, my own agenda, or what the world tells me, but to follow the way in the kingdom of Christ. Because sin no longer has hold over us. Well, let me try and illustrate it this way. Let's imagine a, a young woman who gets a job in another part of the country, somewhere she's never been before, somewhere she doesn't really know, and desperate to find accommodation, she just accepts this, this invitation to, or accepts this deal from a landlord to have, a, to have accommodation um, there. She doesn't really know anyone else. The job's starting next week. She takes this place. And as she lives there, she finds out that the landlord's quite a bit of a rogue and he keeps on adding extra things to us. He, he, he had told her that he was going to pay the council tax as well. That was included in the rent. And then he said, no, I didn't say that. And he adds in. And he keeps going back to her for extra bits of this and things that she owes him. And she doesn't know anyone else. She's, it's a new place and it's all very strange. And he keeps pestering her. And, and then, in fact, he, he kind of lets it be known that some of these bills could be reduced a bit for some sexual favors. You know, that's, and she doesn't, she's trapped. 
And then she, it turns out that, in fact, she does know someone in that city. There's, she has an, an, an older cousin who lives there, and he hears that she's there. He hears that, um, and goes and sees her and sees the predicament that she's in, and he says, I've got a friend who takes in lodgers. He'll take you in. And he deals with the, the corrupt landlord. He makes sure, even though he doesn't agree with all the payments, he just pays it, says, that's it. It's dealt with. It's done. And even though that old rogue landlord still tried to pester her, even though he still approached her for, for sexual favors and, and, and so on, she could now say that, go away. It's all been dealt with. I, I don't owe you anything. I'm free from you and from what you're trying to do to me. That's what the apostle saying is true of the Christian. Satan comes and you. Satan beat it. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen for me. I'm taken out of Adam and placed in Christ. And everything that's true of Christ is true of me. We are joint heirs with him, as Paul will say in Romans 8. It's a decisive. And therefore, that's the thing that sets us free to, to live in that new world. <clears throat> Let me deepen, as it were, the, the, the landlord illustration. And, and this has happened Gosh, a number of times since, you keep on getting this kind of stuff from time to time in the, in the news, but um, about 15 years ago, remember we discovered a guy in Austria, Joseph Fritzl, I think was his name, and he'd kept a family in the dungeon, and, and um, he'd even fathered children with, through his own daughter, so, and his children and his grandchildren were, were just kept in the, in the basement, away from the rest of life and away from the rest of society. And eventually, somebody discovered, and eventually somebody got him, and eventually these people were set free. They were no longer under Fritzl's control. That did not mean, did it, that life was always going to be easy for them. There was a whole lot for them to learn. And maybe, maybe even from time to time, some of them might have thought it would be easier to be back in the dungeon. You know, sometimes life is easier when you don't have to make decisions. And then uh, you're confronted with choice upon choice upon choice upon choice, and you're not used to that. And you think... But of course, ultimately, they wouldn't want to be back there. And moreover, even if any of them mucked up and got something wrong from time to time, nobody was going to throw them back into Fritzl's dungeon. Well, when God rescues us in Christ, we are taken out of the power of sin. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. And I'm set free to, to live that way of righteousness. So, he says, verse, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer yourself so that you can live that new way, so that you can live Easter, so that you can live in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And just like Fritzl's kids and grandchildren, it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be straightforward. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to put into practice. But hey, this new world is so much better than being back in the dungeon. And the God who loves us and who gave Christ to die and to rise for us is not waiting just to throw us back into the dungeon whenever we muck up. He's wanting us to grow into that expansive new life and new way. 
Now that's salvation. That's what God is doing. Christians are to live in line with their new status, their new standing. They are no longer imprisoned and held captive under the reign of sin, but they are through Christ to put that old way to death, to enjoy, to taste, to realize, to experience, and to do the life of Christ in today's world. And so what God has done for us in Jesus isn't something that breeds complacency, but rather when we properly grasp it, it should give us the confidence, the determination to, verse 13, daily offer ourselves to God, to live Easter. Our limbs, our organs, our mind, our memory, our imagination, our emotions, our will are to be put at the disposal of God to live in that life of His kingdom because it's so much better than life in a dungeon. We are to think and act as those who have died and risen. Live the resurrection life. This is the life of the baptized. This is the life of those who are part of God's new creation. This is the life of the Christian. This is Easter, which is still very much with us. And for Easter not to remain in the past and lose its influence is in part, in large measure, whether or not the people of God will live out the life of God in the world today. And that's why Paul says, count, reckon, verse 11. This is what's given to you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are committed to this new life way that you should be living, that I should be living, that we all should be living in Christ. Reckon on it and count on it. This is who I am, and this is whose I am. And on the basis of that, offer ourselves. This is the Christian life. This is Easter. Reckon, count, understand, and use the resources of God, the new life, the resurrection way. Follow Jesus out of the tomb and into new life. Let's pray. And in this prayer, I'm going to use part of um, a prayer that was used each day by um, an Anglican cleric, John Stott, who, who did so much in his life for the kingdom of God. Use that just as a model of this kind of consecration that Paul's calling us to the offering of ourselves. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Amen.